Hi, this is Dr. Michael Greenberg, on the road for Reach MDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. And today I'm in Philadelphia, home of my favorite cream cheese, and continuing my visit to my new favorite museum, the Muter, with my guide, the curator, Anna Doty. Now let's move upstairs. All right, let's go upstairs. Okay, we are up in an upper gallery now that is loaded with tourists today. We're in front of about... 139 skulls. I was going to say 100 and some skulls. 139 skulls. Pretty rare that you'll get to see 139 skulls just all together like this. This is actually called the Hurdle Skull Collection because it was collected by Dr. Joseph Hurdle. Now, again, most of the stuff we're dealing with mid-1800s. Dr. Hurdle actually was ahead of his time. He wanted to actually debunk the notion of phrenology as a real science. So what he did is himself and he established agents to go out to Europe. Most of these skulls are predominantly Eastern European. And he collected them. And he also collected anti-mortem data. So this is what we call a known population. We know a lot about these individuals. And if you come over here, I'll show you a couple. Now, there's lots of interesting stories here that are just condensed into this little card. But this little edentulous fellow right here, no teeth whatsoever, his name was Giza. He was 80 years old at the time of death. They recorded that he was a reformist and a herdsman. Now, at the age of 70, he attempted suicide by cutting his throat. Now, unfortunately, or fortunately, he had an ossified larynx, so it didn't work. And it says here that he lived for another 10 years without melancholy. A new potential treatment. An ossified larynx. <laughs> but you see here we have another man named, I'm sure I'm probably going to butcher this pronunciation, Andrew Sokolov. He was a Scarposi, Scarpazi, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. A Russian sect that believed in castration, and he died of self-inflicted removal of testicles. Doesn't say how old Doesn't he was. Doesn't say how old he was. Everybody else? I can judge by looking at him that he was fairly young. He was probably between, well, his third molars are in, so he was over 18, probably between the ages of 18 and 30. Now, for most of these, we do have ages. A lot of them have interesting stories. We had one individual who committed suicide because he was afraid his mistress was being unfaithful. You know, it's interesting as I look at these and look at the stories, it's not just skulls. There's a story of each of these people executed for murdering her child. Absolutely. Died of typhus in Vienna. Suicide um, by hanging. Died of tuberculosis right. in the charity hospital in Vienna. Absolutely. You, you really kind of get a medical history in these skulls of that part of the world at that time. Exactly. Uh, because exactly. if you look at the ages, they're all pretty young. And mm -hmm. it, well, except for Giza here. Right. Well, he was the yeah. exception. He was the exception. Now, did you see this guy here? I think he was a soldier, and for the crime of grave insubordination, died under the most cruel scourging. Interesting stuff. But aside from the kind of sensationalist how they died, from an anthropological standpoint, not just doctors, but also anthropologists and other types of scholars also come here. We recently had the American Academy of Physical Anthropologists meeting in March, and we had about two, 3,000 bone enthusiasts descend on the museum. And of course, this is a very popular exhibit, because what you're looking here is a chunk of time. So from the period of 1800s, we know exactly where these people came from. So in terms of body morphology, cranial morphology, you can do studies and compare and contrast the morphological differences that people have undergone since more genetic migrations have occurred. Okay, I can't help this. When the bone specialists were here, did you serve them a buffet of ribs? <laughs> no, ribs? I should have. Well, they're my, uh, my own people to say. You know, I, I am, uh, again, a forensic physical well, anthropologist. So uh, you'll notice well, here that a couple are missing. 
They're in my office right now. I'm in the process of taking detailed measurements and photographs of every single one of these. We're going to create a database and then make it available for researchers. Well, I think the point here for our physician listeners mm -hmm. is that, I mean, visually, this is quite a stunning exhibit when you Absolutely. look at all these skulls staring mm -hmm. out at you. But when you start to read this, as a physician, what I get is not the sensationalism of it, mm -hmm. but I get the public health concept of that time of the world, of what mm -hmm. was going on, the diseases that are listed, how mm -hmm. people died. You get like a slice of life into that time, something that we can get in modern times other ways, but this is history. This is living history. Absolutely. And, and whenever we tour a museum, I think the, the bottom point of the line is that this is not dead stuff. This stuff speaks to us mm -hmm. and it teaches us. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of education for maybe the younger generation. I think a lot of younger kids have what I call this Halloween syndrome. They think all skulls look alike and that have just come out of that Halloween factory. And I sit them here in front of this display and I ask them, show me some differences that you see in these skulls. Do they all look alike? And they say, oh no, this one's really narrow. Or look at the teeth on this one. And they really start to look at them and go, this was a person. And this skull is the framework of the face, and this is why we look different. And they really just kind of get this eye-opening experience of this isn't just 139 skulls, this is 139 unique individuals who had unique lives. If you've just tuned in, you're on the road with me, your host, Dr. Michael Greenberg, on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. And we're on tour in Philadelphia with Anna Doty, the curator of the disturbingly informative Muter Museum. Well, we are here under the portrait of Dr. Muter, Thomas Dent Muter. Is there an umlaut there? Yes, there is. Yes, we, we like to stress there is an umlaut. It's not mutter or mutter. It's Muter. And a good-looking young man, well, kind of not unlike myself. Yes, but unfortunately, the reason he looks so young and good-looking here is he didn't really have a chance to get old. He died at the age of 48. And he was a surgeon. He was a surgeon. He was on the faculty at Thomas Jefferson University. And the reason he had such an amazing collection was he was a teacher. He was a professor as well as a practicing surgeon. And he amassed, through his own efforts, these collections of anatomical specimens of wax models. When he found out that he was in ill health, he decided to donate these objects to the College of Physicians, of which he was a fellow, along with quite a substantial endowment for the creation of a fireproof building to house this museum. The museum itself, while it officially received the items in 1858, did not open until 1863. Let's move over and take a look at the soap lady. All right. Well, now we're in the dermatology section, um, which is dear to my own heart, and one of your famous pieces here is a, a lady with a cutaneous horn. Yes. Which is larger. I've treated one about a quarter that size. This one is about eight inches coming out of her forehead. Right, yeah, approximately eight inches long. Her name was, well, we refer to her as Madame Dumanche or the Widow Sunday. She was a washerwoman in Paris, and... People always ask, why did she let that horn grow so long? It is coming pretty much right out of the middle of her forehead and extending down past her face. So it would be right in front of her face. And one of the main reasons is surgery was and really is a kind of a dangerous or hazardous pursuit. You don't, you know, go into it lightly. And at the time, she, of course, she was not very well off, so she was at the mercy of charity hospitals. But I should say, eventually, she did actually have a surgery. She survived the surgery, and her skull and the horn are in a museum in Paris. I'm not sure which one. 
Now, what we have here is predominantly a whole section of skulls with tertiary syphilis. A lot of people don't realize that syphilis is, of course, systemic, and that it has basically three stages. And once you hit that third stage, it's when you really start seeing a massive necrosis of the skeletal system, a lot of the times in the delicate facial region. Fascinating. It's something we just don't see these days in our practices. And you have smallpox here? Oh my goodness, we have smallpox, we have gangrene, we have things like eczema, diaper rash. We show everything because it all has a significance in terms of of medical education. All right, if we turn around here, Mm -hmm. we come to a case with what looks more like a mummified person, but is not. It's a soap lady. It's a soap lady. It's, again, it's a type of preservation, of natural preservation. It's called adipocere. It's also known as saponification, hence the soap lady, because adipocere is a waxy, tallow-like substance that's similar to soap. One of the main questions I get, of course, when we have tours is, is this real? And absolutely, she is a real human body, preserved. You'll see she's in a simple glass and wooden case. There's no refrigeration. There's no kind of humidity controls. And if you take a whiff, you'll realize that she's fine. She doesn't really smell. Where was this body found? Interestingly enough, this body was found in Washington Square Park. Um, Washington Square Park is one of our many beautiful open-air parks in the Philadelphia area. And what a lot of people don't know is that these historic parks in Philadelphia, and really in a lot of cities in the United States, during times of epidemics especially in urban areas. These parks were the only available source of open land and were used as open graves. Perhaps it's a morbid way of thinking, but if you're walking on any of our pretty historic parks, you're probably walking on somebody. Uh, I'm standing in front of a cabinet here. I love this kind of stuff. It's objects. It's some hair from Edward Jenner. It is Dr. Benjamin Rush's very fancy jeweled shoe buckle. And I see here an electrometer used by the Curies. Yes, Pierre and Marie Curie. We actually had a couple more objects of theirs. Unfortunately, those objects came directly from their lab, and they were radioactive. They were hot, so we had to remove them off-site. And they're going to stay there for the next 3,000 years? Uh, Yeah, unfortunately, we have to maintain the safety of not only the staff, but the visitors. So we have been routinely screened for radioactivity, for mercury vapor, for things like that. See, to me, as a physician, this is fascinating. This is Lister's original tubes for testing sterilization. And these are names we all know, Pester, Lister, Curie. Yeah, exactly. And being around their objects, there's something sacred about that to me. I feel the same Mm -hmm. way. I mean, this is a piece of history. You have to think, you know, that Lord Lister held that. He used it, and it was an integral part of a very important period of medical history. And we have one more place to see, which is outdoors. Yes, on, the herb garden. Let's go look at the All herb right, garden. let's go look at that. Well, now we're outside next to a beautiful church. Right in downtown Center City, Philadelphia, is this wonderful little garden, this little oasis, where it's actually, there's a little method to this overgrowth here. This is a medicinal herb garden. What we have here is a lot of seemingly normal plants that were used for medicinal purposes in the 18th and 19th century and a lot of medicinal bees. So we have lavender we and have primrose. Lavender. We have the lamb's ear that was, of course, used for Band-Aids. Really? Actually, Tell yeah. us about that. Well, take a look. Feel some of them. You'll see that they're nice and soft. Oh, I and see. And they're absorbent. And back before there was, you know, the Band-Aid brander, you would wrap your a little boo-boo. In the and this would have been the type of herb garden a physician may have had to make up their medicinals. Exactly. exactly, to restock those medicine cabinets and medicine boxes that you saw here. And it's a nice place to have lunch. 
You don't think the station sent me here without telling me to bring home souvenirs. So, of course, there was one last place to visit. And now here we are in the, oh, we're in the gift shop, and I'm struck right away that you can buy a gummy heart. Yes, absolutely. This is an, edi- an a- edible gummy heart? Oh, absolutely. We have gummy hearts. We have eyeball lollipops. I think uh, some of our more popular ones are these skull candies right here. Organ slime, of course, very popular. Our snotty nose keychains. And the world's tallest shot glass. It's oh, a, it's a double because it's Chang and Ang. It says Chang it's and Ang. Double size shot glass. This is v- who, someone deserves an award for coming up with this one. Would you like to have one? Thank you. It's on I'll the house. Take it back to the station, and thank you for letting us tour your museum. It's been absolutely fascinating. Well, thank you for coming. So, with cheesesteak stains on my tie and gummy heart in hand, I left Philadelphia and the Muter Museum, whose curator Anna Doty would love to welcome all our listeners. Reach MDXM 157 is here for you, the health professionals who care for your patients. We welcome your questions and comments. Please visit us at reachmd.com, where our newly redecorated website with our on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Register on the website and enter promo code RADIO for six months of free podcasts. And we truly thank you for listening.